Well, we are uh, continuing to go through the book of Ephesians. We're at the end of chapter 4. Uh, if you can turn there in your Bibles, uh, be great just so you can follow along. Um, what Paul has done in chapter 4, at least from the middle until the end, is he's gone, gone through these phases of explaining uh, who you were, which is verses 17 through 19. Um, and then he explains who you are as a Christian, verses 20 through 24. And now the passage we'll look at this morning is Paul explaining, well, how do you live now? Now that we're a new creation, what does that mean? How do we live? What are characteristics of our life? And Paul uh, goes through five of them. But um, I think it's common, sadly, that as Christians, we have this idea that uh, Jesus, the Son of God, he comes to us with grace. And then somehow God the Father, he comes on this other side and he comes to us with law. And as Christians, we sort of have to walk this tightrope of like, okay, when do we rely on Jesus? And then when do we rely on the law? It is really a complete misunderstanding of the gospel message of what Jesus has done. And Paul, and it's significant here because Paul gives five imperatives of don't do this. Don't do this. And if we have that view that if we're resting in grace and love, then that's pleasing to Jesus. And then over here, God gets really angry if we've done something against his law and somehow Jesus won't really help us in that because we knew better. But the gospel message is that uh, God loves you. Uh, as If you are a child of God, that means you rest in Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love you. And you are called to live a life uh, within that love, within that understanding that you are made into a new creation. One author says, uh, the Ten Commandments come to us through Christ, not through Moses. As we, as Christians, we, as we rest in Christ, we see the Ten Commandments in light of Jesus perfectly fulfilling them, and then being a guide for us of what does it mean to live out this new creation. They are not a means to attain union with Christ. Christ calls us to rest, um, union with Christ calls us to rest in Christ's fulfillment of the law and joy in obedience. But there's really a difference between uh, relying on our own obedience that we're going to earn something before God or resting in Christ's obedience. In one story, you're called to be all you can be because obedience is king. In the other story, Jesus is all you need because his obedience is king. Because he did it perfectly. So Paul lays out five areas where uh, we are to see our union with Christ and what are the practical implications of life. What does this mean that we are a new creation? So let me read this uh, passage, and you can probably pick out the five, and then we'll, we'll talk through them. 
Um, Therefore, uh, beginning of verse 25 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give an opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only as such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so these five are putting away falsehood, be angry and do not sin, sin, do not steal, but work to be generous, uh, do, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, and let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and slander be put away. So Paul uh, begins here with, in verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, meaning that uh, these people in the church in Ephesus have believed the truth that uh, Christ has made them a new creation, that their sin is forgiven, they are at peace with the God who is in control of all things. Put away falsehoodly, each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This is really a straight quote from Zechariah chapter 8 where the members of the post-exilic community were urged to keep covenant with each other. Do not live in falsehood, but live in the truth with your neighbor. These are people in uh, your community who've been called out of exile and called to be with them. You are to build a life with them, and you are to trust them, and you are to live in honesty because it's vital to a relationship. The vice of speaking falsehood is a destructive vice. It's only to be combated with the virtue of truth. Speak the truth. Verse 25 through 26 talks about anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Notice in this vice, it does not say Do not be angry. But it says, do not sin in your anger. And so from that we get that not all anger is sinful, but not all anger is righteous. (laughs) And we, as people, uh, we tend more to the sinful, selfish anger than we do to the righteous anger. Psalm 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own heart and your bed and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Anger is like a time bomb. Dealing with it uh, quickly is what you're called to do. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It means there's the, there, the time is important uh, when you are angry with someone. 
Because if you don't deal with it, that anger will continue to eat at you. Address it. Confront the person. Have a conversation. Forgive the person. As you trust in the Lord, your anger um, will move away. Because you're beginning to deal with your sinful anger. So he's talked about falsehood and truth. He's talked about anger. And now he talks about the thief. And he says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something good to share with anyone in need. Um, it's one of the commandments. Do not steal. You guys know which commandment that is? I'm lying. This is the trick. Okay, here, let me, this is real, I'm a visual person. I think we might do this on Sunday mornings, not today, but on future mornings. Just learn all the Ten Commandments together. So the Ten uh, uh, stealing is commandment number eight, okay? So think of it as eight, <laughs> got it? And you shall, is really simple, okay? You shall not steal, got it? Do I have to do it again? Eight, stealing, got it? Okay, there we go. Yeah, but you will remember that now. And you might go home and think, well, how would you do all the other nine with your hands? Um, you can search the internet. There are a lot of different ways. Anyway, uh, do not steal. But what's really interesting here, it's not uh, just saying don't steal. So like, what is the goal of the eighth commandment? See, now I can say it. You know exactly what it is. Don't steal. What is the goal of it? It's not just saying, like, I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to steal. I'm fulfilling the commandment. But what you have here is an explanation. Do not steal, but labor so you can be generous. It's not just giving up this vice, but it's a, it's a devotion to virtue. It's a devotion to hard work and generosity. So the thief is not just someone who stops stealing, but someone who has dealt with the vice, that God has transformed his heart, but now is devoted to the virtue of generosity. So hard work and repentance is a path out of this life of stealing. When do you find fulfillment in your work? Many of you are my age uh, or older, and uh, from my generation, my parents were boomers, and I remember being in my 20s, and uh, the issue in my generation was that we thought, out of our ignorance, that um, we lived in, you know, in a whatever, a four-bedroom house in the suburbs, and then when I get my first job, I can buy a four-bedroom house in the suburbs. Like, I could live in my parents' neighborhood. <laughs> It was this, this thing of you're not going to attain what your parents have worked for 20 or 30 years for. But what's happening now, and that was my like, general generational struggle in the issue of work. Uh, what's happening now are people are saying, I want to work, I want to be fulfilled in my work. Nothing wrong with wanting to be having fulfillment in our work. And I hope all of us have jobs that we are fulfilled in. But what's happening is people are saying, well, 
I'm not going to do anything unless I will be fulfilled in it. Not understanding, just like me in my 20s, that I can't afford <laughs> the house next door to my parents, that maybe you will ha- you'll have the blessing of having jobs that will not be fulfilling because you will learn that that is really not the point of work. Because Paul here says one of the significant things of working is not personal fulfillment. It is generosity. You are working in some way for your neighbor. You're working for the person sitting next to you. So wanting to be fulfilled in your work, that's a wonderful thing. Wanting to attain, you know, wanting to live in a larger house so we can have people around and have a, uh, be generous with a home, that's not a bad thing. But if we see that is the only reason why I'm going to work is that I want to be fulfilled in it, um, you've missed really a significant part of work, which is uh, hard work transforms you. And it also allows you to care for the people around you. And you know that as parents, as you work to care for your children. And maybe you work uh, grudgingly. Maybe you work and you struggle because you want them to be more thankful. But part of work is to be generous. But when do you feel valued in your work? Do Do you feel valued when you get a paycheck? Do you feel valued because you feel like you're adding uh, worth to something? You're, you're, you're able to use your creativity? Or maybe some seasons you will work merely because you have to. And you're in a job that is really hard. And this might be a helpful reminder of you that you're working to, to help the people around you. And I've sat down with young men uh, who won't work because they're so flooded with this idea that your career has to be fulfilling. And don't do anything until you know what that's going to be. Instead of, just might need to get a job. (laughs) Now, I'm sure there's women in the area too, but my interaction has mostly been with men in that age group. So, um, but here we have this example that our work is good for others. It is not for personal fulfillment, primarily. But I hope we do have fulfillment in our work that God has uh, called us. And I hope that we see this transformation as someone uh, was once a thief and all they wanted to do was steal and take. But now they're in a position of working hard so they can be generous and care for the people around them. And so this idea that we can go through the Ten Commandments and you get to Commandment 8 that says, do not steal, and think, like, you know what, I've done that one. Like, I I check the box, I steal no longer. But do you work hard for the people around you so you can be generous? You can help them in ways that they cannot help themselves. And we are called to be generous as God's people because God is generous. Think of if we have that view of, so the Ten Commandments point to the character of God and we could say like the Eighth Commandment, oh, what that that tells me about God is he doesn't steal anything. Okay, it really doesn't tell me anything about God. 
He just doesn't steal anything. But, but here, applying it here, not only does God not steal anything, but God is generous and he sacrifices for others. And what's an example of that? Salvation. It's God's generosity to his people. Verse uh, 29 through 30 talks about our words. It says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only, as, only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our words uh, mean something. Just like our opportunity to work uh, is Part of it is to be generous. How do you use your words? Do you just not say anything bad? <laughs> or do you, uh, are you generous with your words? Are you generous with encouragement and your love for people and a desire to care for them and to ask them good questions and to know them? Our words... Um, are to lift up and align with our new identity in Christ. They are not to be corrupt, but they are to, be, to build up. And this does not mean that you and I are supposed to, every time we engage with someone, we're supposed to say all this flowery stuff about someone, and then like we're fulfilling this. But is, uh, do you take the opportunity to be encouraging of what people have meant to you? Do you take the opportunity to ask people good questions, to get to know them? Uh, I really hope um, that you fight the temptation uh, to talk corruptly. Second uh, Timothy uh, 2, uh, Paul again writing, he's writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and he says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Now, so what is the path? Corrupt talk, what does it lead to here? It leads to more and more ungodliness. It takes you on a journey, and the journey is to more and more ungodliness. It's you, you and I more and more living in the futility that we were redeemed from and we were taken out of because of the work of Christ. But sometimes when we talk about corrupt speech, you might have this view of God that somehow God is like a prudish grandmother who gasps at the presence of profanity. And, and then what she does is when your birthday comes, she doesn't give you as much money in her birthday check because she wants you to stop doing that. But God knows the journey our words take and the journey from a heart which is disgruntled, which is revealed in speech, which goes down the path of more and more ungodliness. All words have meaning, and meaning to the speaker, and meaning to the hearer. And words have power to encourage or destroy. So Paul has talked about uh, falsehood and truth. Be angry and do not sin. Let the thief no longer steal. About working hard to be generous. Let no corrupt talk out of, come out of your mouth. And then, which I think is really fascinating, he brings in this phrase, Grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only as such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. First, this is one of those passages where we get insight into the Trinity, uh, where the, you cannot, I, I cannot uh, grieve the wind, a, 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 a force that is not personal. You cannot grieve the wind. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a person, uh, a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force that is impersonal, but the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And the Holy Spirit has sealed you. Do not push against this work, but live as one who is sealed. And second, as much as we might think that grieving the Holy Spirit really should be lined up for the most horrible of sins, murder, Paul lines it up here with corrupt talk. Your words matter. It's applied to our words and our language. The fifth of these uh, vices and virtues is in uh, the end verses here, verses 31 through 32. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Uh, anger that has uh, been stored up for a long time. That's what's described here. Bitterness and wrath and clamor. Your wrath might be displayed in some violent, terrible voice, or your wrath might be displayed in a quiet, subtle stabbing in the back. It's not the volume of your voice. It is what is going on in your heart when the words come out of your mouth. What brings out these qualities, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, um, it's selfishness. All have their motivation in getting what we want or think we deserve or say that we are entitled to. The self-focus of our life leads uh, to wrath for anyone who gets in our way. Paul mentions forgiveness here as a motivation uh, to not store up anger. Uh, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. Uh, it is not dependent on the person uh, becoming a better person that we forgive them. Forgiveness deals with our, uh, your heart of bitterness. Uh, to forgive means you are, uh, not, you are working toward not holding someone, someone's sin against them. That you are forgiving them. But there may still be consequences for their sin. If you've paid attention to any of the news of the last week, um, you know in several stories... Uh, people who have been abundantly evil, horrible to kids. Um, uh, it is a great call for those children to forgive. But there are real 
consequences that are brought about by those adults that should be applied to them. Does that make sense? This understanding, I remember I sat down with a married couple, this was probably 10 years ago, and oh my gosh, I was called out, just finished a Bible study, and I think, gosh, that went really well, and you know, everyone, it was wonderful, and get a phone call, husband just finds out his wife had an affair, and he says, meet me at home, because I think I might kill her. And so, my, all my excitement of this Bible study is gone, and now I go and meet with this couple, and they had, she had this wrong, there was repentance and forgiveness, but there was a wrong understanding of, well, you said you forgave me, so now, like, everything's fine again. And it wasn't. And so we had to have this long process of working through, what does this mean to actively forgive? As Christians, this is part of, uh, this is part of being united to Christ, that you and I understand how God has forgiven us, so then we can extend forgiveness. We can let bitterness, resentfulness, malice, we can begin to repent of those and let those go. But it is work to forgive people. The opposite of this, Paul names at the end of this, the opposite is uh, kindness, tenderness, and being forgiving. Uh, Romans 2, 4 is one of my favorite verses where Paul says, do you not know that it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance? Do you not know that it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance? It is not that I repent and then I've earned God's kindness. It is that God is kind and I, I know his kindness to me in Christ and that leads me to more and more repentance because of God's kindness. And then we have here, forgive one another as God has forgiven you. Kindness is uh, one of the most powerful things. Uh, there's a story about um, Augustine and Ambrose, where Augustine went and heard Ambrose uh, teach at a church, and um, as Augustine comes to Christ, uh, he says, there's an interaction between him and Ambrose, and he says, Ambrose, it wasn't, it wasn't your teaching that drew me to repentance, it was your kindness. It wasn't how you explained the gospel, it wasn't what you told me about Jesus, it was your kindness to me that the kindness of Christ was embodied in the way that you interacted with me. God is the one who allows us to understand what does it mean to be kind, what does it mean to be forgiving. And when God has taken you from the journey of who you were to who you are in Christ, this passage has laid out, now how do you live? In this, What does it mean to live out this new nature of your union with Christ? So what motivates you to uh, live out this, this Christ-likeness in your life? What would, reading this, what would, be, what would be your motivation of uh, making a good choice over a poor choice? Uh, Paul gives us three in this passage. The first one, what is a 
good motivation here? The good of your neighbor. Verses 25 and 26. Another motivation is uh, the pleasure of God, which is the opposite of grieving the Holy Spirit. This is who God has made you to be. And then verse 32, uh, walking in obedience as thankfulness for what Christ has done. And maybe you've reached a point in your life where just being good is exhausting. And you're sort of sick of it. And keeping laws and doing what is right and reading this passage and you think, oh, now I have to stop doing this, now I have to do this. And your obedience is built more around trying to earn something, maybe even from your neighbor. You got to the point where you're tired. Uh, This is why the message of Jesus is good news. Because the life you've been living of trying to be obedient, to earn something from God, to be a respectful person, to be a good, a good church member, is what you've been following in your obedience to do that is not the gospel. The gospel is you and I relying on God's grace and generosity to embrace us. And as God embraces us through the great work of Christ, and we have this union with Christ, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, then we begin to understand, oh, this means I can walk in truth because my identity and who I am is kept by God. It's not something I have to fight for. Because you can be just as lost and in sin, striving to gain God's acceptance as you can be, not caring about God at all. It's basically the same thing. (laughs) It's saying, uh, one, I'm going to be as obedient as I can. I'm going to do everything God commands me to do, and then I'll be okay. There's no Jesus. There's no grace. There's no repentance in that. Then the other side is saying, you know what? I don't even care. I'm going to just do whatever I want. Again, there's no Jesus, there's no grace, there's no repentance. This is why the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus is such good news. Because it is God's work in us. This morning we come to this table as a great example of people that are receivers of God's grace. We come to this table and we, we, uh, we... not only remember, but we trust that God nourishes us by coming to this table by faith. Because the work of Christ is enough. And the life we're called to is a life of uh, truth and encouragement and hard work and generosity. But doing those things does not make you a child of God. It is only someone who has been made into a child of God that sees the joy in walking in that obedience. Let's pray this morning as we come to the table. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are enough. We thank you that you not only have uh, set us free and forgiven us because of uh, your work on the cross, your perfect life, and your resurrection. 
but you have so generously called us and empowered us to live as people who are truthful and encouraging and hardworking and generous. We pray that we would know more and more of how good you are to your people. And I pray for those this morning who are bound and caught up in a life of legalism, of you just have to do good and God will be happy, that you would free them from that. And they would know that you smile upon your children. And as we take of communion this morning, uh, I pray that you would nourish us. In Jesus' name, amen.